Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines. We're your hosts, Genevieve Tallmeister, Aaron Anderson-Birmingham, and Wahaj Alam. This week, we will be discussing the intersection of conflict and health. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Around the world, armed war, conflict, and violence have had significant influence in the way that healthcare is delivered. This has been seen in the Syrian civil war beginning in 2011, the Iraq war, and in humanitarian crises such as the Rohingya refugee crisis. On this week's episode of Beyond the Headlines, we will be discussing the intersection of health and conflict. We will investigate the impact of conflict in terms of policymaking and its implementation, the strain and toll that is taken on the state, decision-making, the role of private and on-the-ground nonprofit actors, and the responsibility of large multinational organizations such as the World Health Organization. We will dive into these issues today through the perspectives of Dr. Izaldan Abulesh, Ahmad Firas Khalid, and Ruby Gill. Our first guest today is Dr. Izaldan Abulesh. I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Abulesh in his office two weeks ago. Dr. Izaldan Abulesh is a medical doctor, author, and public health professor at the Dalla Lana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. His research focuses on global public health, women's health, conflict and peace, and hatred as a contagious disease and public health threat. His work as both a healthcare practitioner and a peace advocate is grounded in the belief that health can be mobilized as a tool for peace. Through his professional work and personal experiences, Dr. Abulish is an expert on the impacts of conflict in countries such as Palestine, Egypt, Israel, Uganda, Yemen, Afghanistan, and Saudi Arabia. He is now one of the most outspoken and prominent researchers, educators, and public speakers on the intersection of health, peace, reconciliation, and development. He has been interviewed by major media outlets around the world, including the BBC, CNN, and the New York Times. Dr. Abulesh has been nominated for three years in a row for the Nobel Peace Prize and has received numerous other awards and nominations for his work. So thank you for joining us today. So to begin with the first question, uh, what is war and why are you interested in this topic? I am interested in this topic being a Palestinian refugee who lived in the Gaza Strip with all of the consequences, even my life was a war. I was fighting on daily basis just to survive and now I am a Canadian where I see the difference where the people they lose safety and security. So war for me is a complex disease and it has root causes and we need to dig deeper to find out the root causes of violence and conflict not to blame people about it and even before taking a decision to wage war we need to think of others who are seeking peace who want to live in peace in this world and who is going to pay the price of any war or any conflict or any violence in this world war is a fire to gobble everything solid a green water no one is immune to the consequences of war in particular women and the children war is not what do we see on the screen a soldier who is going to kill or to be killed war is about the children about women who are separated forever from their loved ones 
War is a propaganda. It's dishonesty. It's torture to humanity. War is not to be documented, but to be prevented. As I learned as a medical doctor, diseases are to be prevented, not to be managed. So war is not to be documented, but to be prevented and to be the last option. As in medicine, surgery is the last option. And the aim of the surgery is to do no harm, to cure the patient, not to kill the patient as what happens in times of war. Mm -hmm. So it's important for us to understand what is war and the pattern of war has changed. Before it was an army to face an army in a battlefield and they fight against each other. But these days war comes to the cities. It's about all aspects of life, innocent people who are paying the major price. 80% of casualties are women. Mm -hmm. It paralyzes the life. So we need to think thousands of times before waging any war. How much money do we need to feed the world is not as much as we need to bomb certain countries. So it's time mm -hmm. to invest more in preventing conflict and violence and wars and to focus on the human cause and not to politicize. It's time to humanize. Mm -hmm. The sustainable developmental goals that we are setting up, the first goal is to fight against poverty. So we need to fight against war, against the preventing war, not to wage war. We need to fight to provide food to provide safety, security, education in order for the world to be a human, safe, secure one. So in some of your work, you have described the impact of conflict on access to health care, the relationship between political violence and mental health, the long-term effects of political violence, and in general, the socioeconomic impact of war. So how does conflict and crisis change or influence the social determinants of health and well-being? Of course, violence and conflict, they are determinants of health. Even war is a determinant of health. It's a public health issue and even a public health emergency. And even violence, it's contagious disease which is spread from one to the other. So we need to take it into consideration and no one is born violent. Mm -hmm. It's about the environment, the context in which we are born and we need to learn more and to promote awareness about the impact of war and conflict in this world. Only we, when we speak about the impact of war and conflict, how many tanks, how many jets, what is used, but no one is talking about the impact of war, what will be the human cost of war. And the most difficult aspect is the human suffering, mm -hmm. the economic, the social, the wounds which are induced in the hearts, in the souls. The physical wounds, it's easy to heal. But what about the mental, spiritual, and heart wounds, which will stay for generations mm -hmm. to be cured and to be healed from these wounds? War, it destroys, it paralyzes all sectors from the human life, the educational, the health sector, the environment in which we live. As I said, War goes to city. War goes to the cities. So it paralyzes all aspects of life, and the people at that moment they are only focused about their safety, 
and even safety is lost. So concerning the healthcare, the healthcare, most of the focus will be on emergency care. So the primary healthcare where most of those people who are benefiting from primary health care are women and the children for antenatal care, for other diseases, and the children for immunization, where in these countries, in particular, in countries in conflict, women and the children, they constitute the majority of the population. So they are disconnected. Even any elective surgery, any cesarean section, anything, it will be shut down. So immunization shut down. A primary health care shut down just to deal with emergency situation and of course in order to run it the connection between cities and the healthcare providers the healthcare provider they seek safety and security so no one is willing to endanger his life so the quality of healthcare will be diminished and it paralyzes the educational system the economic system the life is shut down mm-hmm in times of war. So it's important to focus on what is going on. It's easy in times of war to heal the wounds. But what about after one of the cases even in some situations, even in the conflict in Syria, there is no light because the electrical planets are destroyed. The sewage is destroyed. The sanitation is destroyed, access to water, all aspects, food security. So it's not there. Some of the cases, they were forced to do cesarean section on the light of the cell phone. And sometimes even without anesthesia, without anesthesia, you need antibiotics. You need all of the healthcare means because what is needed? You need electricity. If you want to do an operation, an emergency surgery, you need, of course, the anesthesia. You need the elevators, which are working with electricity. So Mm. all of life, the people's life is under danger, under risk, and it adds to the suffering of these people. Definitely. Um, so, how have you seen the roles of private and nonprofit actors make up or fill in the gaps of um, delivery of healthcare in the midst of conflict? Um, and what do you see as Canada's role in this? Yeah, of course, Canada plays active role in a humanitarian aid. But the people, you know, in times of war, they can manage what is going on, what is more needed. And the impact of war is the post conflict. Because, as I said, the rehabilitation of the health system, rehabilitation of the wounds, because rehabilitation of the mental consequences of the war, we rush to help in times of war, and then we forget what is needed afterwards. What is needed afterwards is much more than what is needed during the war. So even many countries, they say we can manage what is going on during the war. It's not only needed just to help the surgery. What what about the rehabilitation, the amputation, which takes years and it needs a lot of resources. So it's important for the whole world when we want to manage and to prevent any war. Of course, number one, secondary prevention is to manage it. But later on, what is needed, the post-operative care and the post-conflict rehabilitation of the health system and the human wounds and the human suffering. And to rebuild their life, their health systems, their education system, to resume functionality and to run as a human being. Because if we left them 
the relapse mm -hmm. of the conflict. It happens maybe within five to ten years. So we need to take this into consideration to rebuild the health system in order to avoid the relapse of the conflict. Mm -hmm. And just drawing on um, the role of private actors, what do you see? As yeah, some uh, private actors, they have positive acts, but sometimes the private actors, it's a double sword where they mm. thrive and they flourish in times of conflict and to manipulate it as an opportunity for them to thrive and to get resources from the people. So it's important to take care of this, to understand it's a human cause and it's not time to win Yes. from that cause. You spoke about this previously a bit, but um, could you speak to the role of intervention and prevention? So maybe in the form of immunization during conflict and when what role does that when play? When we speak about the prevention, we have three types of a prevention. Primary prevention, secondary prevention, and tertiary prevention. So we need to prevent war first. And the prevention by predicting the signals the immediate signals, because anyone is nothing is not erupting in a sudden. There are preparations and there are certain signals, risk factors that we need to predict and to do screening. Where are we expecting and when are we expecting to have war? So we need to be proactive, not reactive mm -hmm. after the war just to take actions. So where are there and what are the causes of the war? And to manage the causes, most of these wars either ethnic, wars or internal conflicts, whatever the type of the wars. So we need to take actions to prevent these wars and to immunize the people, to increase awareness that war is not the solution. Mm -hmm. Violence is not the solution. There are other alternatives that we need. In this way, immunization, I mean, through increasing awareness and also increasing awareness about the cost of war and the human suffering as a result of this war. Education is important. Teaching the people to be human being and that all of us are impacted by war. War and conflict cross barriers. Mm -hmm. And we see the impact of war and conflict in this world, in Syria, in Yemen, in many other countries, in Kosovo, the immigration waves, it crosses barriers with our even the impact, it has direct or indirect conflict. Direct conflict on the people who live there, but indirect conflict which crosses, which crosses barriers to the world. So we need to be proactive and to prevent. When we do, or we try to prevent and to intervene mm -hmm. in a human way to prevent any conflict, we are not doing them a favor. We are doing it because we try to avoid the indirect consequences of this conflict as any epidemic in this world when we intervene in Ebola or any other infectious disease why do we help because we don't want this infectious disease to come to us mm -hmm. so in this case a prevention is vital and important and it's the role of the international community not to watch it or to even to add gas to the war as many other countries ally spreading it or provide them with military means, military and weapon, weapon trade to support it. It's time to stop the weapons trade and to avoid that. Secondary prevention, we have to manage the consequences of the war. And 
tertiary prevention later on, we need to start the process of rehabilitation of the country from the different sectors, mm -hmm. not in a fragmented way, in a comprehensive way, and to heal the wounds of the people, even in Guatemala. A woman said, I feel I am safe. I am safer during war than being in post-conflict because the violence spreads later on. So we need to take that into consideration. The issues of rape and even rape in terms of war to be used as a weapon by many organizations, whether the invading country or the fighting parties or even the international organizations. So it's time to stand up and even to have certain regulations from the United Nations, the international system, to prevent wars from the beginning and to set up strategies to prevent it and to avoid military trade and weapons trade and to invest in a human cause and to avoid and to manage the root causes of wars in these countries which are more mainly it's poverty poverty and suffering. So I guess pulling it back a bit, what would you say is the impact of conflict on the internals, um, internal environment of a state on policymaking and you know the Ministry of Health and who becomes responsible for the implementation and maintenance of this policy and how did the state's priorities change? You know in on? times of war of course, the Ministry of Health in these countries, mostly in countries in conflict, they are fragile states. So even the health system and the ministers of health, they are not well functioning. The governance, the leadership, the resources, the investment in health, even in times of war, allocation of resources would go to the military expenditure, mm -hmm. not the health. So the expenditure to health services is going down. So what are we expecting from a country which is in a fragile state, unstable, lack of sustainable resources, whether human or financial resources. So these countries will be, the health system will collapse, the referral system is collapsed, the transportation system is collapsed, the resources, even the, the supply of health facilities is collapsed. So in this situation, it needs from the international community to fill the gap like WHO and other humanitarian organizations to fill the gap and it can be an opportunity later on in post-conflict to rebuild the health system in these countries. And lastly, from your point of view, what are things that the Canadian government and big multi multinational organizations such as the World Health Organization, what can they do to promote health care in these kinds of you know, conflict-ridden and war-torn situations? Health is not taken in isolation from other aspects of life. Health for me, it means justice, equality, respect. It's about peace. Mm -hmm. It's harmony. And that's what is needed about functionality on daily basis. It's related to education. It's related to employment. It's a way of life about health. So we need to take it in a comprehensive, holistic approach and to resume functionality among within people and among people within these countries. So it needs from all of these countries to find out the root causes, number one, and to start solving these issues and to provide them with the needs. They need to rebuild their life and the different sectors in a comprehensive, holistic approach. And of course, 
to redirect the invest investment in human empowerment, women's empowerment, children's education and health, and to redirect it from military expenditure, military trade, the human trade and the human investment and development. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for meeting with me today. Um, this was very informational. Once again, that was Dr. Izalden Abulesh. Remember, you can join us in the conversation by tweeting at Beyond the Headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Our second guest is Ahmad Firas Khalid. He joined Aaron here in the studio last week. Ahmad Firas Khalid is a medical doctor, a health policy advisor, and a lecturer on health systems and policy. Firas recently completed his PhD in health policy at McMaster University with a focus on supporting the use of research evidence to inform decision-making in crisis zones. Previously, Firas worked as a health policy researcher at the Research Unit on Humanitarian Stakes and Practices at Médecins Sans Frontières in Geneva, Switzerland. He also worked in the Department of Child and Maternal Health at the World Health Organization in Geneva. Firas has expertise in medicine, education, health policy, knowledge translation, and health emergencies working with relief and intergovernmental organizations. Firas is a Queen Elizabeth Scholar in Strengthening Health and Social Systems and traveled to Beirut, Lebanon to work on research that examines Lebanon's health system responses to the Syrian refugee crisis. His most recent scholarly work on the Syrian refugee crisis is published in the prestigious Conflict and Health Journal. Firas attended St. George's University School of Medicine in 2005, where he graduated MD with research distinction. He also holds a Master's of Management from McGill University and both a Master's of Health Professions Education and a Graduate Certificate in Population Health Risk Assessment and Management from the University of Ottawa. So thank you for joining us in studio. Of course. Uh, very excited to have you on the show, and I think we'll just dive right in. So I wanted to start the conversation off with responsibility. Um, who is responsible for decision-making in a humanitarian crisis? It's a great question. You know, um, I think the answer to that would be depends on what you're talking about when you refer to decision-making crisis zone. So what we end up finding in crisis zones is that uh, most often there's so many different stakeholders that play a key role. So if you're talking about humanitarian aid, uh, then the, the sole decision-making are usually the heads of mission or the humanitarian aid worker in the field. Uh, very much often in crisis zones, they try to collaborate with the local health system or the political system so they're not functioning in silo structure. But often the decision-making stays within that organization mm -hmm. or various organizations, for example, the UN system. And then if, uh, it, it, depending on the crisis, so for Haiti, for example, we saw that there wasn't really a strong political system in place uh, when the earthquake happened. And so there wasn't really much of decision-making at, at a political system level. It was more of an individual NGOs that were operating in the field. So it really depends on the crisis and the context, and it varies every time. Is there often coordination between the NGOs? Oh, what a great question. Uh, I might be saying that a lot during this interview, but because a lot of it is actually really true. So the coordination part between the different organizations is, is a very tricky one. Uh, sometimes it works. Often it doesn't. It depends on the organizations on the ground and their willingness to collaborate. Uh, Doctors Without Borders, for example, are very good at collaborating with other organizations. Uh, some other agencies are not. And so it depends on the crisis and the context they're operating in. And probably depends on their capacity. Because Doctors Without Borders, as an example, is a big organization, whereas small, more like religious Christian-based going mm -hmm. in to help for aid groups would have a lot less 
capacity to sit there and organize with other groups. But that's more of a reason for them to actually do collaborate because uh, if there are a small organization who lack the capacity and resources to actually be able to conduct their interventions effectively, that's when it's really become very imperative on them to collaborate with big big organizations. I've done this for a while and sort of learn from each other. And, p- and part of my work over the time has been to really figure out how do we share that information between the people who are making those decisions on the ground in crisis zones so that there is better collaborations among them. So uh, for example, what, uh, part of my research has been focused on how do we put together this idea of a stakeholder dialogue? So if there's a crisis zones, we can get everybody who's involved in decision making from the different organizations on one table to share insights about how to actually improve the effectiveness of interventions and hopefully to lead to better collaborations between the organizations in a crisis zone. Hmm. And who's responsible specifically for policymaking in crisis zones? Mm. It, I, I guess it would fall on whether or not the government is exactly. standing at the exactly. moment. Exactly. Because policymaking for me always stands at the political level most likely, right? Like yeah. we're, we're thinking it, the, the perfect example to me is the Syrian refugee crisis and the health policies around Syrian refugees. It fell under the mandate of the Ministry of Health, uh, Ministry of Health and Public in Lebanon uh, with collaboration with other ministries involved. So that was really the political system with some kind of collaboration by the different NGOs and the UN system. But primarily the policy was released and the policymaking process has happened at the ministry level. So you mentioned the Syrian conflict. Um, we were interviewing Dr. Abulesh the other day, mm-hmm. um, and he mentioned how often the ministry swaps from a primary care focus to solely emergency care. Mm-hmm. So what strains did the Syrian conflict put on the country's health systems? Did you see that shift to solely emergency care? So I think that, again, it all depends on the crisis. The the type of crisis of the Syrian refugee is an interesting one because people I find, when you talk to anybody on the streets about, like, tell me about about a crisis, like, what's the first thing you think of? Uh, Even if I were to ask you, you would say probably like tsunami or an earthquake or wildfires. To, to shift your thinking about crisis zones to more of a migration crisis, uh, it's a bit difficult to, uh, to understand the gravity of the crisis when we're talking about people on the move mm-hmm. uh, because it doesn't play out as like wildfires or tsunamis or earthquakes. So the point that I'm trying to make here is that with the ref- Syrian refugee crisis, the health impact of the crisis is very different than a tsunami or an earthquake. We see that the number one, some of the main causes of health uh, consequences of the crisis have been non-communicable diseases, post-traumatic stress disorders. Uh, some of those are dealt with in a primary care healthcare system, but most often they need more specialized care, which student refugees often don't have access to. Mm-hmm. So it becomes very, very difficult. So I think at the beginning of the crisis, if we're talking about people in Syria flooding from the war, you're going to see more emergency type uh, interventions. But the further you go along their journey, and the further away they are from Syria, the more likely you'll see the non-communicable diseases, you'll see the post-traumatic stress disorder. And so the systems uh, have to adapt accordingly. Uh, because it's a very different way of dealing with those patients that the system might not be ready or able to engage. We have to remember in Syria, in Lebanon, for example, it was more than one million Syrian refugees. I mean, that's a that's a big, 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 big number on one system that's already struggling to keep up with its current population. To be able to host and address all those health needs are very complex. Non-communicable diseases and chronic diseases, they're not easy to address. We have a difficulty here in Canada to address them, yet alone a system that's that's pri- primarily private, um, which has its own set of problems that the system has to adapt to, uh, heavily dependent on foreign aid. And if you are, if you've been following the news lately, you know the foreign aid is going lower and lower every year. And you know mm-hmm. there's lack of political commitment to helping people in fragile zones. That's just the reality of it. Yeah. 
I'm going to keep on the Syrian refugee crisis sure. for a second because one of your pieces explained that health policies in Lebanon and Ontario were developed to avoid political opposition. Yeah. Um, could you elaborate more on the impact this had on the programs delivered? Yeah, so when we really start, try to study policy-making processes, we try to look at see, um, do the interest groups or the interests of different groups play a factor in either pushing the policy forward or derailing it from happening? And one thing we saw with the health policy here in Ontario, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, because the liberal, the liberal federal government put forward a mandate to say, we are opening the borders for Syrian refugees, and the provincial government at the time was a majority liberal government, it sort of lined up nicely and they were able to follow through with the mandate to really accept a Syrian refugees and very quickly I mean if you look at the timeline we produced uh, you'll see that uh, the timeline between accepting Syrian refugees to the time where the policy was implemented and developed it, it was very remarkably short uh, and with that comes this idea that because there was no opposition to the policy being developed it was much easier for them to put it in off the ground right away okay um, so then onto the ground so how do conflict and crisis disrupt on-the-ground implementation of health programs? Um, how do they interact or interfere with uh, the groups coming in to implement the health programs on the ground? So uh, it, I guess it depends on the context and where you're at. Uh, I think it plays differently in Canada than it would be anywhere else. We already have very strong systems in Canada that can adapt very fast to a crisis, I, I believe at least. Uh, in places like Jordan and Lebanon, and I only speak about those two places because I'm familiar with them, uh, that's difficult. That's really, really difficult because the existing mechanisms are not in place to allow for a reshift and remobilization of resources in a very fast and efficient manner to allow uh, an adaptive response to a crisis. Uh, so it really, that's why there's, I think, a lot of uh, emphasis lately on putting those mechanisms in place so that if a crisis does happen, we're able to respond to it. But, you know, if we take it one step further and we look at, like, uh, I always think of September 11 because I was in New York the time September 11 happened. And I think, you know, the U.S. is, is the place where we look at for the best mechanisms in place. And, and they struggled to address with a massive crisis. It was mm -hmm. a terrorism attack, but nonetheless, it was a crisis. Uh, and so I think there's this ex expectation that low and middle income countries who already have existing mechanisms in place to respond to crisis is not is not fair uh, and will take time for that to develop. Yeah. And in some of your work, you've talked about how research evidence is used in providing humanitarian aid interventions but not in health system strengthening. Mm -hmm. So could you elaborate more on what you mean by that? Well, our research found out that actually when we looked at the two policies that the, uh, the were specifically designed to address the health needs of Syrian refugees, that uh, although re uh, different types of information was used to uh, develop the policies, research evidence was not one of them. Uh, they used sort of learning lessons from previous crises. They used tacit knowledge, uh, stakeholders' opinions, data from the ground. So whether it was surveillance, epidemiological data. But uh, the way we think of systematic reviews and summary of systematic reviews, uh, which is one form of research evidence, was not really used in developing those policies. And there can be many reasons for that. It could be A, that they had a very short timeline to develop those policies. Or B, which is my third study, really tried to focus on, is that 
we can't, we need to stop expecting that decision makers are able to understand research evidence without providing them with the mechanisms and tools uh, to make it easier for them to take away the key home messages that they need to work on. So uh, I ask uh, all audience that are listening to this is think of a time in your life when you're trying to make a big decision. So you're trying to buy a house, uh, it's Black Friday today, uh, there was a sale and you're trying to make that purchase. Uh, how do you make a purchase on the spot at the time? You try to think about all the different informations you have at your disposal, right? You, you'll probably read the reviews, you'll call a few friends, uh, you'll look up at like different websites and what they have to offer about it. So my point is that there's various types of information and then you arrive at that decision. Mm -hmm. But most often, if you ask any individual when they're trying to make a big decision in their life, they'll almost always resort to the information that's easy for them to understand and they can relate to. So like if you're an athlete and you're trying to buy running shoes, you're gonna ask your other athletic friends, what is a good one? running shoe and they're going to give you an advice that's tailored to you that's custom made to you like oh you do crossfit so you should probably buy nanos just an example we need to start doing exactly the same with humanitarian aid and with decision makers who work in crisis zones and i'd even argue with all decision makers we need to figure a way to take take all this massive amount of research evidence we have and package it in a way that is easily accessible, easily understandable, and so the decision makers can make decisions in real time in an effective way using the best available evidence. Yeah, not using necessarily the research jargon that we often exactly. get caught up in in the academic world. Absolutely. And we're very good at that. I mean, we're seeing such a, a huge emphasis now in Canada, which is what I love, is that we're trying to support more and more researchers to really think critically about how can they package their research findings in a way that the average person can understand it and that decision makers can act upon it. Mm -hmm. So there are so many individual non-for-profit organizations working in this area and that are engaging in their own personal research. Are the results often shared um, and used by others, or does it stay in that internal silo? There's been many, many efforts to try to share research evidence among humanitarian aid workers and organizations. Uh, but the, the difficulty is really still at, remains that the way the way this research evidence is being shared among organizations is not in a way that is conducive to make decisions in real time uh, with a crisis that can happen at any moment. Uh, and that is where often, if you examine policies that are re in relation to humanitarian aid, you'll notice that the people in humanitarian aid field will most often use their professional judgment and their personal opinions when they're making decisions that involve the lives of millions. And by the way, I just want to be very clear here, I'm not discrediting uh, professional opinion and personal uh, and personal judgment. On the contrary, I say that is extremely valuable source of information, especially in humanitarian aid, because often the context is new. You have to rely on your previous experience. What I'm arguing is that should be only one source, and another key input of that is research evidence, and we need to see better efforts at doing that. Uh, I'll give you an example, just because it's more concrete when I give an example. In India, I came across the Ministry of Health in India has put together a uh, research to evidence policy unit within their ministry, and its sole purpose is to ensure that every policy that gets produced by the ministry is that research evidence is one input into that policy. So they're not saying it has all policies have to be based on evidence. Ideally, that should be the case. But they're saying we need to see that every policy produced, that research evidence is one input into it. Okay. 
So you've worked in so many different organizations in the health sector at this point. Uh, in your experience, are you able to describe the transition post-conflict from aid to back to proper health services and ministry programs? Yeah, so that's like recovery and like development after a crisis. And that that handover back from the non-for-profits back to the government often? I personally have never witnessed it myself. Of course, I, as I've been in this field for a while and I have many, many colleagues who are in this field, I know a lot about what you're talking about. I personally, I've never seen it myself. But uh, no, I think I think that it, it takes the recovery and development phase is, uh, in my opinion, one of the biggest struggle. Uh, because it's very easy to mobilize people around the current crisis that's uh, galvanizing all the attention on the news. It's very difficult to then, once the crisis is over, to keep the attention uh, on the crisis and to help recover and rebuild the country and go back to normal functioning, right? Uh, the way I think about it is we always often talk about in humanitarian aid between my colleagues and I about this idea of fatigue, you know, like uh, uh, crisis fatigue. People are just tired of talking about the Syrian refugee crisis, for example. Uh, I see people often now come up to me and say, hey, you know, it's great work that you're doing on the Syrian refugee crisis or that you've done. Uh, and it's good that you keep promoting that we need more help for them. But we're kind of tired of hearing about it. And the reality is, well, actually, uh, host countries are trying to recover. Right. Like uh, yeah. host countries are trying to rebuild their health systems based on that massive influx. So we really need to keep continuing the conversation. The conversation is not over. The attention needs to stay there. And that's the case with many other crises that we say we see. The media just doesn't keep up with it. Long 60 enough. seconds is what I say. You have 60 seconds and then it's on to the next one. And that's just the nature of how things work, right? And so our, our job, all of us who are involved in this work, is to keep somehow finding a way to uh, attract attention to this problem until it's resolved. I imagine part of it also is the just the capacity of the organizations. Other crises come up too. Exactly. So there's a certain point where you have to make a decision to pull out and allocate your resources elsewhere. I keep going back to Lebanon because that's where I spend the most time trying to study this. But I'm thinking about, I thought about Lebanon on my, my way here to this interview today. I thought, oh, you know, Lebanon's going through a revolution, as everybody knows, mm -hmm. uh, and a, quite a big one, a substantial political turmoil in the country currently. But they still have the Syrian refugee crisis. Ongoing so at the ongoing time. at the same time. So then how does that work? Technically, there's a shutdown of government in Lebanon. <laughs> and so like, where does this play out? What happens to Syrian refugees? We need to always remember the vulnerable populations involved. And that's often when we talk about crisis zones, we talk about it at such a macro level that we forget that there are people's lives. There are daughters, children, husbands, wives. Like there are people that you probably have encountered in your life in some capacity or another who are directly affected by those crises. And so what happens to them? Yeah. I think one of the things that I've been playing with a lot recently is how different it is to come into a crisis zone with what lens you have on. Uh, mm -hmm. So when I almost spent time in Lebanon, I came to Lebanon as a researcher. Uh, and so when I viewed uh, the Syrian refugee crisis, I had to be as objective as possible because that's part of being a researcher is you try to, uh, although it's very important that you allow yourself to, uh, the interpretation of your results play a factor in the way you see them, I really tried to be capture as much of what I'm viewing on the field on the ground at the time. And I thought of my colleagues who go to crisis zones who actually work, who are on the front lines mm -hmm. and how different it is for them. Uh, and I think that is a type of conversation that we don't have often, is that how, who do we allow into that space? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And do uh, should researchers be allowed into crisis zones to conduct their work? I don't have an opinion on that. I think that is just the questions that are happening. There's recently there was a commentary on the Lancet in the Lancet that was talking about how the uh, Syrian refugees are over researched, and we need to stop sending researchers from high income settings to low and middle income countries to research on those populations. And it, it, it literally shook me because I was like, wow, that is that is so interesting to think of that, that they're an over-researched population, yet they still need so much help. So then what's happening with all that research that we produced? If I know for a fact, because I have many friends who are in the ground working with Syrians in Syria and outside of Syrian host communities, and they are in desperate need of help, that makes me think, if you're saying that this population is over-researched or there's too much research evidence about them, then clearly there is a problem with the research we're producing about this population. It is yeah. not getting to influence change. It's not creating change. And that's, I think, where the the, the commenter didn't go there, but it left me with that thought that, uh, actually, I disagree. I think that we need to do more research on this population, but we need to do more research that actually leads to change. Yeah, more geared maybe to the policies, exactly and the programs that are affecting them directly. Correct. As working as closely as with the NGOs on the ground, working closely with the Ministry of Health, have it to be a collaborative process so that the research evidence can somehow inform future interventions. Uh, this is one way to make sure that the research evidence is being used, uh, and the, em- the the emphasis is on us researchers to make sure that our findings get disseminated, that we talk about them as much as possible, that we find creative ways to share them with people that will create that change if you're not capable of doing it yourself. I get asked about my students all the time. Uh, how do I create change? I'm worried about staying in research and then I won't be able to create change in crisis zones or in any other field. And I always say, well, what you need to be thinking about, how can I change my research evidence or my research endeavors that they're very connected to people's needs? So from early on, when you identify a research question, you were really thinking about a population at its core, that uh, it is a problem that A, they're suffering from, and B, that the, whatever you end up producing will actually create a change there. Uh, the similar population that I think about is here, indigenous in Canada. Uh, there is often that same idea that we need to make sure that uh, research endeavors are uh, taking the needs of indigenous people first and foremost, and that we work with them uh, in our all of our research initiatives. I'm going to pull back sure. a second for something you just said a couple minutes ago, um, where you might as a researcher observe something different than someone who's working on the front lines. You said you were on the ground in Lebanon. What is something you would have seen that maybe someone on the front lines wouldn't have? Um, it's securing interviews with key stakeholders in the government is extremely difficult. It's not as easy as people think it is. Well, I hope people think it's not easy. People often read my paper that's published in Conflict and Health and assume that uh, I've had actually a couple of people come up to me and like, well, it's great, you know, you were in Lebanon, you were able to interview all those amazing people like who were involved in the policies. And I kept saying, you know, it wasn't that easy, huh? Like, don't, please don't get this impression that you can go off to a crisis zone and have easy access. I was extremely privileged that I had uh, networks through the American University of Beirut and the Knowledge to Policy Center with Fadiz Jodali at its, uh, uh, as a leader of it to help me leverage the networks there to be able to interview the, uh, you know, very key stakeholders that were involved in the policies. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened. And it took, 
I mean, I remember being in the office till like sometimes till 10 p.m. just trying to secure uh, an interview and working around the clock, waking up crazy early in the morning to just check my email to see if anybody got back to me, running back and forward. I mean, I always say a big way to see how much work I put in is to actually look at my Uber receipts <laughs> because uh, Lebanon has Uber um, and you should see how many times I would go back and forward with the ministry. Uh, and often, actually, a few times, actually not a few times, many times, I would go to the ministry with a, for a scheduled meeting that doesn't end up happening. And I would wait there for hours uh, and have to come back again and again and again. This work is difficult. It's not easy. Working in crisis zones, as a researcher, and then I worked in, so uh, before that I worked as a, a, in WHO, but more on a system level, and then working specifically on crisis zones, doing research in a crisis setting it's exceptionally difficult as somebody who's done it. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. There's like no I read organization. It. No, there is no organization and, and you really gotta have a network. Like I can't I can I can never imagine how I could do that work if I didn't have an established network that helped guide me. Uh, that is just so exceptionally difficult. So, uh, we, I mean, that's been published heavily. We do always talk about how difficult it is to conduct research in crisis zones. Uh, and we don't, I don't think uh, universities, we need to be more aware of that uh, and help our students and our future researchers, whether even faculty members, to go there and do the work that's necessary. Because we also come with a certain skill set that's very much needed in the crisis zones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not to negate the fact that local institutions in crisis zones are not capable of doing that work, but we come from uh, a different mindset in some sense uh, that helps us to apply our own uh, knowledge into an area that really needs to be addressed somehow. I think we're good there. Thank you so much for coming in. Of course, I'm really happy to do this, and I'm so excited that uh, we get the chance to, I I get the chance to share my research evidence and to meet the incredible team here, so... Thank you so much for this. Once again, that was Ahmed Firas Khalid. Remember, you can join us in the conversation by tweeting at Beyond the Headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Ruby Gill is a registered nurse with an international master in health leadership from McGill University. She currently teaches as a guest lecturer for McMaster University's Physician Assistant Education Program. She has a diverse experience in the nonprofit sector, as well as in global health, health management, and humanitarian assistance. Additionally, she serves as a director for Doctors Without Borders. Her experience with MSF has included a variety of roles, such as a nurse in Nigeria, an international association coordinator, and the diversity and inclusion advisor. MSF is known for being very vocal about what they see in the field, including any misconduct being carried out by a group or entity. Um, How does an organization taking that approach impact their ability to work in that area? Hmm. So, uh... MSF was built on medical humanitarian aid and témoignage, which is speaking out about what we see. In every context where we work, uh, we acknowledge also that speaking out could put uh, at risk some of the work that we're doing, meaning we could, in fact, um, be asked to leave a country if we speak out. So in, when we decide to speak out, we uh, it's not an easy decision. It doesn't happen in every context. But we weigh out uh, what is the best for the population that we are trying to to serve. Um, so is it best to speak out and risk being uh, asked to leave that context? Or um, do, we, do we feel that the risk is too high and that we can actually help more people by staying and perhaps not speaking out in this situation? So once a conflict has begun, uh, what determines whether or not MSF will go in the field? Hmm. So... Um, 
we use basically the same kind of criteria wherever we work uh, around the world, and that's looking at the most vulnerable populations um, that are impacted, whether it's a conflict or a natural disaster. And we do an assessment of um, is there basically a need where we have the ability to, to fill a gap. I imagine like in such situation, there is likely a breakdown in communication with the governing organization in the conflict zone. So uh, what are the approvals you require to enter the area? Um, and also, how do you establish a network with other, other stakeholders once you arrive in the field? Mm-hmm. So obviously, it's, uh, it's quite different depending on the context. In some places, we are working in an area where there is a fully functioning government. Uh, in others, perhaps not. Um, we always, uh, upon initial arrival and even before starting any kind of activities, we engage with um, you know, with the government, whether that's specifically the Ministry of Health, um, other other factors of the government, and also any other uh, aid organizations that are also working in the area. And a lot of that is also to do with efficiencies. We all look at, okay, well, what needs are you addressing? Where are the gaps? And what can MSF actually uh, support with? So um, a conflict can sometimes emerge out of nowhere. In these circumstances, how does MSF prepare for such eventualities? As an emergency response organization, so we have uh, what we call an emergency pool of staff. So that's usually experienced staff that have already worked in projects with MSF, and they're basically waiting on call um, to be able to respond immediately. So basically, they're people that are able to jump on a plane the next day and go to wherever is needed. So that's the human resources side. And then in terms of supplies, we have um, logistic bases set up uh, around different places around the world. So basically warehouses where we store the emergency kits that are specific for whatever context we're going into. Um, how does providing healthcare in a human-made conflict differ from um, one that's like occurring like a natural disaster? Um, really, it, the basis is just the same as far as MSF is concerned. It's always about uh, the populations, the most vulnerable populations in that context, whether it is a man-made or non, or a natural disaster. Um, so we look at uh, who are the most vulnerable persons in the situation, and uh, is their response needed by, by MSF? When so many things are changing on the ground, how do policies play out in practice? Um, how often do we observe like an official change in them? Uh, so basically, we are always negotiating for space and access. That's probably the biggest thing. So how policies kind of play into that. I mean, within the organization, we have policies and we have, um, you can take it to our, our values. So we have certain um, values that we work by. And, uh, for example, we are uh, independent. So we do not align with any one side of a, of a conflict. Um, we treat anybody that comes to our doors. And so in this way, we have to constantly uh, negotiate with all actors and all sides of a conflict uh, to ensure, first and foremost, that we have access to the most vulnerable patients and also for our safety of our own uh, employees on the ground. Have there been an increased effort to integrate mental health initiatives in on-the-ground healthcare programs in areas of conflict? Absolutely, absolutely. So in, in all... In most contexts where we work, in fact, we do recognize that mental health is, is a key element of overall health and 
I can give you a recent example uh, with uh, migration and in some of the uh, temporary camps that we are supporting. Um, one of our primary areas of focus is, is also is mental health, um, given that people are coming from areas of conflict and are impacted by this conflict. So uh, when we're talking about gender roles, um, does it generally have more of an impact on relations with government or relations with the impacted people you are helping? Uh, from my experience, um, I would say it's more in the relations with uh, the government opposed to with the populations we work with, with the exception that uh, in certain contexts, we ensure that with our patients, we have, let's say, females working with females, um, where it is culturally appropriate to do so. Um, so we ha- take, in, take that into consideration as well. So uh, we have been talking with our other guests about the transition of uh, health services from primary to emergency care with the outbreak of a conflict. Uh, with regular health needs taking less priority, is there usually a deterioration in health outcome as a result of this? Uh, yes. Um, however, I will also put in the caveat that uh, we are still addressing those primary health needs just in a very complicated context. So when you have, let's say, a conflict that breaks out, uh, you know, you have populations that still need their dialysis three times a week or their insulin. And so the challenges become they are cut off from accessing that. So, in fact, we're still often in addition to the emergency kind of trauma surgery, um, we are also trying to manage primary health needs which uh, require, let's say, a more consistent supply of insulin or um, access to dialysis equipment, uh, things like that. So as an organization, and I think this applies to most humanitarian aid organizations, we're constantly adapting and um, what used to be, you know, you go into a conflict zone and it's just trauma surgery, that's no longer the case. Uh, we are also, we see the need to continue uh, primary health care. And of course, there's a disruption in that, so it is going to negatively impact health outcomes. Um, but it is an issue that most aid organizations are aware of and are uh, simultaneously trying to address. Okay, can you describe how organizations like MSF work alongside ministries of health? Uh, what does this collaboration look like, and how do they act as supplementary service providers? Mm-hmm. So um, I can give you an example from my own experience working in Nigeria, and the project that we worked on was, was quite specific. Um, so we worked very closely with the Ministry of Health on a very specific, uh, if you say a very specific contract almost, where we we made it clear that we would only be working in this very specific area because we had the expertise. And um, the Ministry of Health uh, did not have that expertise. Um, so we were basically supporting them. And uh, but and at the same time, we also were not addressing other needs. Um, so we, if patients were coming to us for other primary health care needs, we would uh, redirect them to the ministry. And we actually worked basically side by side with the ministry so we were able to easily refer them um, to the right place. You've worked as a nurse on the ground for MSF. How does an average day look like for a worker on the ground? Are you often stationed in one area or are workers having to adopt daily? Um, Is there an ability to build a routine? Yeah, so uh, it certainly depends on the context. So I'll speak to my own experience. Uh, 
Um, there was a, a daily routine in that uh, I basically uh, worked alongside a team of locally contracted healthcare workers. And so our team was made up of physicians, nurses, lab techs, um, health promotion workers. And we were responsible for two villages. So we would travel out every other day to the other village, um, to each village, sorry, and set up our mobile clinic and do what we needed to do. And then the next day we would be in the next village. So in that sense, there was a bit of a routine, but we certainly had to learn to adapt. Um, For example, when rainy season came, uh, it cut off our access to the villages, so we had to um, basically come up with ways to to cross the the river so it changed our route. And So there's always things coming up that um, you find every day there's a new challenge, and uh, but set within generally a, a routine. Yes, so there's often a decline in interest during the response and recovery phase after a conflict. Uh, this is often when the need is highest. Um, do you have like any thoughts on this? Yeah, so this is where things like press releases and speaking out are very important. So actually the organization is made up of uh, 25 different sections, and each section plays a role. For example, MSF in Canada is one of those 25 sections, and so MSF Canada also plays a role in um, engaging the public in terms of uh, information. So using our communications team, our fundraising team to get the word out there that this is uh, currently where we're working and what we're doing and this is why we need support or this is why we need attention or these, I should say, these populations that we are working with need need attention. So we use media um, to, to bring attention to issues. Um, I wanted to thank you for giving your, us your insights. Um, we really appreciate the work you're doing. Um, thank you so much for the interview. Thank you for having me. Once again, that was Ruby Gill. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines. Many thanks to our guests for joining us in the discussion of health and conflict. Today's show was produced by Aaron Anderson-Birmingham, Wahaj Alam, and Genevieve Tallmeister. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, MSF, and the Hmong School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out the podcasts on all of our episodes on our website, www.beyondtheheadlines.net. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at Beyond the Headlines. You can also check out our Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.